0: This Christmas, uh, this Lord's Day before Christmas, we uh, take what may seem to be an ironic uh, turn from first uh, glance. We're turning away from our series in Matthew to turn instead to the book of Revelation. Ironic, I say, because we might well have expected on the Lord's Day before Christmas to turn to one of the gospel records, you know, of the uh, Christmas history. Or maybe one of Paul's letters to... uh, come to one of his brilliant summations of Jesus' accomplishment of our salvation as our incarnate Savior. Anything but revelation. But there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And there are more things that took place in the spiritual realms on Christmas than are expressed or recorded in the Gospels, at least explicitly so. You thought John didn't have to say anything about Christmas, didn't you? Because he uh, doesn't mention it in his gospel the way that Luke and and Matthew do with their records of angels and magi and shepherds. Well, John just saved his contribution to the Christmas history for the book of Revelation. Revelation 12 is where we're turning and uh, going to be reading right after we pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its every part, and all that is revealed to us by your Spirit when we open it and hear it read and especially preached. Father, we pray that uh, that will be the case again this morning. May it be your voice that is clearly heard. We are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 12, 17 verses we'll be reading. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Christmas was an act of war. War. I think that first came to my understanding or something of it, of the military significance of Christmas when I preached to you years ago at Christmas time about the angels. You know, a closer look at them revealed at that time that, uh, and we're reminded even this morning reading Luke 2, that rather than sporting girlish figures and strumming on harps, as in popular iconography, the angels are actually mighty warriors. A great host of heaven who, as you just read, spoke that night to the shepherds in military cadence that filled the night sky. Glory to God in the highest! It was, it was a military contingent of angelic soldiers that appeared to the shepherds that night. Other angels that night, unseen by men, were busy elsewhere in the spiritual realms, fighting, making war on Satan, and, and still others guarding the little one in the manger in Bethlehem. All may have appeared calm and bright you know, on that holy night to human view, But as a matter of fact, a fierce war surrounded that stable. In one sense, the birth of Jesus was the first volley of the the great war against the kingdom of Satan. The appearance of the one who was to come to attack the strong man in his own palace, to take away his armor in which he trusted and to divide his spoil. Satan fully understood all of that, though he was and still is fool enough to launch his resistance. In another sense, the birth uh, of Jesus was the climax of a long history of cosmic conflict that manifested itself again and again uh, through the course of the church's history. Remember with me all the way back to Genesis 3 now. The fall of man into sin. Remember who instigated that devastation? The serpent. Satan, right? It was he who whispered into Eve's ear. He who told them that they would be like God. He who beguiled our first parents in the garden. God declared in the wake of that carnage how it would be from that day onward. Speaking to the serpent, he declared, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The whole of Scripture leading up to Christmas Day, the birth of Jesus, is a history of that very conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman, her offspring. The serpent of Genesis 3, who is also, by the way, the dragon of Romans uh, of, of Revelation 12, has been hard at work for a long, long time, trying desperately, ferociously to destroy that plan for bruising his head under the foot of Eve's son, who also appears, by the way, here in Revelation 12, the male child, in verse 5, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Several times, you remember, Satan came very close, didn't he? Very, came very close. His head rears up several times in the history of the church. Look back with me to Adam and Eve. They'll have children, right, as Promised, Though one of them will rise up to kill another. But then comes their son, Seth. Does Satan know that it's through the line of Seth that the promise will be kept? Well, apparently he does. So he whispers into the sons of Seth, whispers into their ear, to go marry the daughters of Cain. And they do. And as a result, wickedness mars every family and every man, save one, Noah, and his family. Through the flood, God's promise comes down to a thread. But it continues, and the dragon fails. The promise comes down again to a single man, to Abraham. Again, the dragon licks his chops, you know, as Abraham first threatens the, the whole plan of salvation by calling Sarah his sister instead of his wife, almost losing her to the king's harem. Then he tries to accomplish God's work in man's way by going into Sarah's servant girl because Sarah is beyond childbearing. Satan cheers! Will the devil win? No. Foiled again, Sarah bears a son in her old age. But then Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is barren. Again, God intercedes and opens the womb of the barren woman. But what is this? Their child Jacob steals the birthright, deceives his father, and flees the farm. Now what? Surely now all must be lost. Well, Jacob returns, yes, in slavish fear of his brother's wrath, but Esau does not kill him, and the promise goes on again the dragon appears before the woman god has rescued his people from egypt but now they are dancing around the golden calf has the dragon won no intercession is provided and the covenant people are spared then they will be spared again and again and again even when an entire generation is condemned to die and bodies be strewn in the wilderness, the dragon still fails. The next generation will enter the land. Then, out of all the families of Israel, one is chosen to carry on the promise. Jesse's family, specifically Jesse's son, a shepherd boy by the name of David. He'll be the one from whom the Savior comes. But what is this? He's nearly pinned to the wall by evil Saul's spear. Saul himself moved by an evil spirit. But ultimately the dragon fails again. Evil queen Athaliah, daughter of evil parents Ahab and Jezebel, rises up in a rage and slaughters the entire royal family from whom Jesus was to come. No royals in Israel, no seed, no Savior. Now they're all lying dead in pools of their own blood. The dragon is won! God's plan has failed. Or has it? Look again. Wise and brave Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, takes Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and steals him away from among the king's sons who are being put to death. She puts him and his nurse in a bedroom. And thus they hide Athaliah so that, from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. Oh how Satan raged! how the dragon cursed the day the people shouted, "Long live King Joash! Does the dragon give up? Oh no! Syria and Israel join forces to Wipe out David's line and Judah's weak willed king Ahaz cringes in the corner, biting his nails. Will the Christ child be born? Can he be born from such weakness and fear as Ahaz shows? The prophet Isaiah sent to Ahaz to give him a sign, you remember. Ahaz refuses even to receive it. I don't want the sign, he says. Satan sits back and laughs. Ah, but he laughs too soon. Whether Ahaz will receive it or not, says the prophet Isaiah, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. A couple of centuries later, King Ahasuerus is on the throne. Under Haman's wicked influence and to Queen Esther's dismay, he issues a decree that all the Jews shall be put to death. Finally, the dragon will bring to an end the promise, right? But the king of kings turns events right around. The devil's servant Haman hangs. Can you hear the crackling of the rope? as Haman dangles from his own gallows. And the Jews not only live, but establish a holiday that the Savior himself will eventually celebrate. You remember the story of Esther. All of that history, John summarizes here in a few strokes of the pen, verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is that woman? She is the church. She is the church. For all of those centuries, from Genesis 3:15 through Luke chapter 2, from the garden of Eden to the Bethlehem stall in the manger, she has been in labor, in labor, pains to bring forth this son. You know, as tempting as it might be for us to identify the woman here in, in Revelation 12 with Mary. She is, in fact, the church. Clothed with the sun and the moon and under her feet and crowned with 12 stars. But now, now that church does come down, as it were, to Mary. The church's labor pains are Mary's labor pains. Now we're in Bethlehem. A young virgin delivers a son, the son, the promised seed of Genesis 3. If you will forgive the analogy, this is cosmic D-Day for the devil. The beaches of hell's Normandy have been invaded in the dark night in Bethlehem. Much blood has been spilt in the effort. The labor has been long, and it has been hard. No doubt had it not been for the angel of the Lord who surrounded Mary and Joseph and the babe that night, the dragon himself would have appeared personally in that stall to crush and to devour that child. Still, he did the best he could, didn't he? You know how he did it how he struck through Herod serving, his, serving the dragon's will, how Herod would slay every male child up to two years old in Bethlehem, indeed in the entire region, in futile attempt to destroy the king of kings. And all through that child's life, Satan would do his level best, or maybe I should say his very worst, to undo him. In the wilderness, after Jesus' baptism, Satan would fling some of his most fiery arrows at a weakened Jesus, hissing with foul breath, All this I will give you if you will but bow down and worship. And a few years later, I can't help but wonder, you know, can you, whether Satan thought maybe for a moment, you know, run his hands together and thought he had finally won with a look of glee as he looked at that grotesque figure hanging there, bloodied, beaten, limp, and lifeless on the cross. Perhaps Satan is that much a fool. But as you well know, even then, the serpent, the dragon, was unsuccessful at dethroning Jesus. John summarizes Jesus' entire earthly life and career from the manger to the cross, Through the resurrection to his ascension in heaven, I say John telescopes it all into a single sentence. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In other words, Jesus, to borrow a phrase, Jesus came and saw and conquered here is how the Bible how the Bible describes the work of Jesus on the cross at his very lowest to our view to our view Jesus is at his very lowest on the cross but here's how the Bible describes it on the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, who is ashamed? As Jesus hangs there in the shame and ignominy, of nudity between heaven and earth dangling on the cross. It is, in fact, the rulers and authorities who are put to open shame as Jesus triumphs over them. Christmas was an act, as I say. It was an act of war. It was the appearance of the king who would crush his enemies and yours under his feet and ours and in a most surprising way by dying by giving his life so that we through him might live by his work on the the cross he stripped Satan stripped him of his weapons put him to open shame triumphing over him he took out the dragon's teeth at Calvary. That's why Christmas is the great holiday that it is. It's not all about family and relationships as I once heard a Christian minister say as he nodded in agreement with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim. It's not about the gift of self as the good rabbi added in that interview whatever that means. Nor is it uh, about making ourselves better people, as the Muslim imam suggested. Christmas is about one thing, Christus victor, Christ the victorious one. That's what Christmas is about, who has bested the devil, who has dismantled, dismantled the dragon's dark dominion in the world. Christmas is all about cosmic conflict that has been won already. This is, as we say, the meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas. Oh, Satan's a terrible enemy to be sure. When the Bible describes him in symbolic and grotesque terms as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and his power so great that one swipe of his tail could take out and sweep a third of the stars of heaven and send them hurling to earth, you begin to understand, don't you, just how terrible is your enemy. And remember that in biblical symbolism, in the matter of biblical symbolism, the reality is usually magnified, not diminished, In comparison with the symbol he is still our enemy still your enemy and still powerful at that even a bound Satan is a dangerous one he's still on the prowl seeking whom he may devour he's still lashing out at Christ only now he's seeking to destroy Christ by destroying his bride. Have no doubt about this. He hates the church as much as he hates Christ, which means he hates you personally as much as he hates Jesus. He may be a defeated enemy, and he is, but that does not mean that it's time for us to turn our backs on Him yet. There is still much fighting to do. There are temptations to battle and to overcome. There is sin to be put to death. There are spiritual battles to be won. There is ground to be taken even from a defeated enemy. In fact, it may be, it is some of the fiercest, of the fighting. The devil has not left the field. He is uh, not going quietly into the night, dear flock. He is still hoping in the fury and, and bitterness of it all, of his defeat, that is, to do all the harm he can to you. You may know from your study of history how Douglas MacArthur's lieutenants often bitterly resented MacArthur's announcements to the press that a battle, this battle was over, that battle was over in the Pacific, uh, one Pacific island or another, and that now there's only mopping up to do. That's what MacArthur called it, mopping up. Nothing so hard about that, when in fact this mopping up was sometimes the bitterest fighting of the war. The enemy, though truly defeated and beaten, hidden in caves and and fighting fiercely even to the death of the last man. So it is with us. The victory is what? The enemy is defeated. The outcome is absolutely certain. But Christmas also reminds us That this enemy of ours has been about this war a lot longer than any one of us has been. Since before the creation, he's been a rebel. Since the beginning of creation of the world itself, he's been hard fighting against Christ and his church. And there's a lot of bitter fighting still to be done by Christ's lieutenants. That's you before the fighting will be over. We conquer him, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony if we love not our lives even unto death. Is your battle cry? This is your mandate, your marching orders by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. If you love not your life, even unto death, we cannot sing. Joy to the world, the Lord has come without immediately being reminded that His divine mission is to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That means clashing kingdoms. It means the spread of God's kingdom at the cost of Satan's. And he is not happy to give up any ground, not one single solitary inch. So every bit of new obedience that you put on, Satan is going to be working very hard to strip off. And every sin that you repent from, he will do his level best to draw you right back into it every effort to raise a generation of faithful disciples of Christ in your home, He will oppose you bitterly. But take heart, Christians, for Christ has won, and we shall win. For greater is He who is in you and he who is in the world. Amen.